3: One thing about that episode that bums me out to this day, Okay, for whatever reason, I don't know, maybe it was the devil, maybe evil demon angel, somebody would not let me get the words Wall and paw pack out of my mouth. <laughs> That's right. I couldn't yeah. say it.
4: Wall and paw I Pack. I couldn't
3: say it. That's right. We were supposed to be on Lake Wall and paw Pack. I can say it now right. as if it's nothing. I can say it with ease. That night, <laughs> I, I maybe got it out once or twice correctly. And the rest, I just couldn't do it. And I remember they were looking at me and they were baffled. They were absolutely baffled. Like, what is this guy's major malfunction? How do you, can you not say wall and paw pack? And I I can't explain it. It's just one of those moments where you're like, I'm so sorry. I wanted to die. I wanted to go crawl. I wanted to dive off that boat and die. Hey everybody, I'm Rob Riggle. You may know me from The Office as Captain Jack, or The Hangover, or Step Brothers, or The Other Guys, or Dumb and Dumber 2, or 21 Jump Street, or Let's right, Be Enough, cops.
4: Uh, enough, enough, Huh?
3: Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know when to. Also, I love karate. Hello, everybody, and welcome
4: to a brand new episode of Off the Beat. I am your host, Brian Baumgartner. And as you just heard, I am sitting down today with the comedic genius that is Rob Riggle. Now, Rob, I don't know if many of you know this. Rob has led a double life. And I mean that, of course, in a non-traitorous way. In fact, quite the opposite. Rob served as a U.S. Marine for over 20 years. And during that time, he actually asked to be stationed In New York City. Why? Because as he was a Marine, he wanted to begin his career in comedy. You've seen him in tons of your favorite shows, from Modern Family to New Girl, Arrested Development. He's been on SNL. He's been on The Daily Show. But his most iconic role, well, it has to be, right? The skipper to Michael Scott's Gilligan, the captain of the booze cruise, Captain Jack. So if you'd like to feel a little bit like an underachiever, but in the best of ways, you are in luck, my friend. You can't help feeling that way after this. Here he is, the incredibly hardworking and disciplined and hilarious. I love him. He's a golfer. Rob Riggle, everyone.
1: Bubble and squeak.
0: I love it. Bubble and squeak, I know. Bubble and squeak, I cook it every moment left over from the night before.
4: Hello, Rob.
3: <laughs> Hello, Brian.
4: Ambassador Wriggle. PXG Ambassador Wriggle.
3: That's right. I mean, it's not a State Department title, but it's up there. <laughs> it's, cl- it's close. It's close. How's it going? Good, bud. How are you? Nice to see you. I know.
4: It's good to see you. It's been uh, a few months here now.
3: I, I know. I know. Uh, I, do, I do run into f- mutual friends, though, quite a bit. Um, oh, you in, uh, I- in Phoenix? Yeah, out of Phoenix, I, th- I think I mentioned. Where's Brian? Why did not he out here? Where is it? What's going on? So
4: <laughs> I know I was a little busy last week, but uh, I would have loved, did you hit the green on 16?
3: Briefly. I did my, my shot with a lot of panache and a lot of flair. We had two shots, right? You had the one when you're actually playing in the pro-am and then the other one was for charity. So on the pro-am portion, I hit it and it starts leaking out to the right. Uh-oh, uh-oh. It's getting worse. <laughs> It's getting way worse. It hits the grandstand, hits it, oh, and no. shoots like a hundred miles an hour across the green, almost all the way over to the other side. Uh, so no, I mean it rolled across the green. So I did have there was time on the green.
4: <laughs> did you get booed?
3: No, I, I didn't because there was so much flare around because it, it was such a shocking shot. Uh, <laughs> I actually got uh, laughs. Which uh, so I'll take the laughs over the boos. But then when I went back for charity, I put it like fifteen feet away. So uh, oh. Yeah. Well,
4: there you go. There's nothing yeah. like that scene.
3: Yes, uh, but but sixteen, sixteen at Phoenix. The whole Phoenix thing is probably one of the most electric environments. Not only in golf, but just in sports. Right? Are we becoming
4: the like Bob Hope and <laughs> I don't know who else of uh, yeah. like the celebrity golf circuit now?
3: Yes, I hope. I hope there's a a generation of Rat Pack esque wandering nomad golfer cocktailers <laughs> in this world. And I hope we're part of it.
4: I hope we're part of it too. <laughs> How good was Bob? Was Bob really good or did he just love the game?
3: He loved the game. I think, you know, he was probably like 10 or 12 handicap. I'm guessing. Perfect. But, uh, but he loved the game and was dedicated to it for sure. I know he's always going between Palm Springs and LA and that's right. Yeah. He loved it. All right.
4: Uh, thank you for coming on and talking to me. I want to start by going way back. I understand, well, you were born in Kentucky, the birthplace of, of my father as well, there you but go. early on moved to Kansas and Kansas was really important to you growing up. What was your experience growing up there in Kansas?
3: I couldn't ask for a better childhood. I don't think. I was blessed with two loving parents and a wonderful sister. So, I wouldn't trade a minute of it. I lived in suburbia, you know Overland Park, Kansas, which is a nice suburb just outside of Kansas City and uh, football in the fall and, and uh, basketball in the winter and baseball in the spring and going to the pool and hanging out with your friends down at the creek in the summer. you know I mean it was a pretty idyllic childhood. so yeah I, I loved it I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything.
4: Were you more interested in in
3: sports
4: or the arts growing up where, where was your focus as a kid?
3: I was a terrible student. Um, okay. okay. I was a great listener, but I, I just I got bored very easily. So it's self entertain, which probably why we ended up in life in the arts. But um, athletics, though, kind of grounded me and gave me some discipline. It kind of gave me a little something to uh, hang my hat on, to have a little self esteem about. You know, when you're not great in the classroom, you want somebody to say something nice about you or have something that you shine at. And so athletics were a big part of my life because I got kudos that way. I got recognition, positive recognition. (laughs) You know, in the classroom I didn't. I, you know, I was a a C and B student. And it wasn't until probably my junior, senior year in high school that I started to kind of apply myself a little more. Take some of the the discipline I had in sports and apply it to the classroom. And I got a little bit better, and I got a little more confidence. You know, it's one of those things too where somebody tells you when you're young. That you're no good at something, and that's just it. You're labeled that. You believe it. Kind of just say, well, that's the way that is. <laughs> right. You don't know any better. You don't. You, you don't have the tools to overcome it, or say, well, actually, I challenge that, or I don't believe that. Or so you go, oh yeah, they, they say I'm a slow reader. That's me.
1: <laughs>
3: I'm a slow reader. You know, and then I go out and try to be better at basketball or better at right. football or whatever it was. You know. So athletics was was definitely a part of my s- self esteem, self worth. Um, and discipline. But I also, my junior and senior year, I started to come out of my shell more. I started to get more confidence. And so I was on the high school radio and television station. I, okay. uh, we had a thing called forensics yes. in my high school, which was like acting and improvised acting. And I liked it because you didn't have to commit to doing you know My Fair Lady for the entire spring or whatever, for the big spring production. And I couldn't sing to save my life. I, I still... I only really nail it when I've had too much to drink and it's karaoke night. Uh, and then I'm pretty, I'm pretty awesome. Uh, at least I think so. I think I'm pretty awesome. Right. I could never sing, so I, but the forensics allowed me to try acting and try little scene work. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then when I got to college, I started again to look into theater and film. I ended up becoming a th- theater and film major at the University of Kansas, and I loved it.
4: I mean, our stories are somewhat similar. I was very sports focused early on. I would say there was, for me, a seminal moment between junior and senior year of high school where I was, you know, sort of dabbling in theater or acting or, you know, doing shows where for me there was a a real shift where I went, oh no, this is what I want to do. I want to be an actor. Did you have that moment when you were in Kansas or making the decision to study? Was it still just fun or a way to, to pass college? Or, or were, you, were you like, oh, this is what I want? That's
3: so interesting. I've thought about it, but I haven't really drilled down on it. I think it was always there. It was a passion that I just didn't believe in. I didn't trust it. I didn't think it was possible. So I thought it's a waste of time. Quite honestly, this is late 80s, early 90s in Kansas you know there's a whole lifetime of of conditioning not from my parents necessarily but from them as well but from coaches and teachers and peer group and other people's parents and you know all these people that I respected that were like oh you know we love acting acting's great but what are you really going to do you <laughs> right. know you're going to obviously have something else you're not putting all your eggs in the acting basket that's not a plan it's it's cute but it's not a plan <laughs> so cute. what are you really going to do it's we you know, and so I would be like, "Oh well, yeah, no, of course, yeah, of course, I'm not going to just do that. I've got other big plans." And uh, but the truth was, is, you know, I, I was a fan of comedy and acting my uh, my whole life. I just didn't think it was in the cards. You know, I thought the odds. I'm a, I gamble. I know the odds on things, right? And right. the odds were like, yeah, <laughs> chances are, the most acting I was going to do is probably going to be right here in Lawrence's Lawrence Kansas. It's not going to go beyond this. Uh, so what do I really got to do? Cause I, I, I am going to have to leave the house back then. You were expected to leave the house <laughs> at 22. There was no grace period. You know, yes. once you graduated, you know, my Same. dad had the plate breaking ceremony, He break the plate and you're on your own boy. <laughs> Good luck. You know, I was expected to start my life. And so, uh, so I, I just never believed it was possible. Not because for a little boy from Kansas, none of that stuff. I'm just saying I didn't like the odds. I didn't right. like the odds of of it actually happening. Right. So, I didn't necessarily commit heart and soul to it, which I learned that's required. <laughs> that's required for your dreams, you know. At a certain point. And so, as I yeah, at some point you're going to have to commit heart and soul. You're going to have to take the leap of faith. You're going to have to risk it. You're going to have to be so uncomfortable. You're going to have to go through a lot of fear and a lot of pain and a lot of failure, and nobody wants those things. Right. Nobody wants the fear, the pain or the failure, but that's, you know, all the cliches are true. That's where your dreams are on the other side of all of that stuff. And, and if you can get through all of that stuff, chances are you got a good shot at getting your dream. So I didn't believe it. So I, I actually got my pilot's license when I was in college and I got a guaranteed flight contract with the Marine Corps. And I was like, all right, I, I've always wanted to serve. So I was like, yeah, this will be great. I'll, I'll go do some, t- my, my time I'll serve, I'll fly planes you know, I'm 22 years old with my hair on fire. I got my pilot's license. This will be great. You know, I'm living my Top Gun fantasy. This is woo <laughs> uh, Well, as I got into flight school, and it was great. It was fun, but the passion wasn't there. I didn't have the passion. Like, I'd go out to the bar with guys in my flight class, and they'd be talking with their hands. We we're like, oh, man, I did a breakup and rendezvous today, and it was about 30 seconds off. And I lost him in the cloud, and I was I must have dropped 2,000 feet elevation. And I'm, I'm sitting there going, yeah, Okay that's awesome. But that, you know, do we have to talk about it now? Cause there's girls over there. Let's go talk to them. You know? And so I realized, you know, the, they were passionate. Like that's what their calling was. They wanted it. And I could tell like, Ugh, I don't know if my passion is where it needs to be. So then I actually started doing some very interesting soul searching at a very young age. I started asking questions. I was like, what do I want? What do I really want? What am I passionate about? What I, what would get me out of bed every day and make me run to the door and put up with things I wouldn't normally put up with. Just what would I do? What is it? About that time, I get a call from a friend I went to KU with, and he was up in Chicago doing uh, Improv Olympic and Second City and all these improv things. And he said, um, hey, Riggle, I'm doing this long-form improv up here. It's what we did in college, but it has a name. It's called Improv. (laughs) Because we used to do bits. We used to do characters, characters. We used to, you know, and, and we would just sit there and riff in the car, in our room, at a bar. Where we were, we'd actually fall into these root scenes and routines, and we'd call them bits or whatever. But I, we didn't know. We just thought we were being funny. We just thought we were super funny. Right. He goes, no, it's there's actually structure to it, and it's a real thing. And he goes, personally, Riggle, I think you would do very, very well up here. I think you're better than some of the people that are up here, and they're getting success. And that seed planted very firmly in my mind. Okay. And it was all coming at the right time. When he said that, something inside me lit and it made me believe. And I was willing to bet on myself for the first time, I think, maybe in my entire life. I mean, I bet on our team and I, I, you know, (laughs) I was always good as a teamwork, but for me to be the, you know, that never happened. So that was the turning point for me where I said, okay, well, I looked at my contract and it was like, oh, yeah, eight years after you put on your wings. And so I was like, oh, God. So I, I had to stop flight school. Become a ground officer because if I didn't do that, I would have been a twenty-year active-duty Marine flying planes, and that was fine. I would have had a great life, but it wouldn't. I would have never tried acting and comedy, and I can live with the failure more than I can live with not knowing. So I switched to the ground side, shortened my uh, commitment, and uh, and then then I, f- I started finding my way to New York City. That was my whole my path in New York. Yeah. So you you were on. The path,
4: I never realized that would have been 20 years in active military.
3: Yeah. And I ended up doing 23. Yeah, I I didn't plan on that at all.
4: Yeah. I mean, you served overseas. This was the first nine years, right? Liberia, Kosovo, Albania. Yep. Afghanistan.
3: Yep. Yep. And did several uh, non-military tours, USO tours as well, to Iraq and Afghanistan and places like that. God, yeah. it's
4: so incredible. We truly owe you so much. And I thank you as always for your service. I, I re- just respect the hell out of you for that.
3: Well, um, you're very kind.
4: While you're doing this, you, you clearly have already gotten bit by the bug and have these plans. Are you doing anything while you're in active service in terms of improv or shows or are you... What are you doing during that time to potentially help prepare you?
3: Yeah, it was very, tr- it was tricky. So when I, when I quit flying, I was down in, um, Corpus Christi, Texas, and I was about to be shipped back to Pensacola. And that's when I made my switch to the ground side. So when I switched to the ground side, they said, okay, fine. They looked at the fact that I had done all this, uh, radio and television and theater and film stuff in, in college. So they said, all right, well now you're a public affairs officer. So they sent me to Defense Information School in Indiana uh, okay. for about four months, and then from there they sent me to North Carolina, Marine Corps Air Station Cherry Point, North Carolina, Second Marine Air Wing. So I I joined, uh, lived on that base for the next three years, and while I was there, I was fulfilling my my you know my contract. Right. There's not much to do in eastern North Carolina when you're you know 25, 26, 27 years old. So I went to night school. I got a master's in public administration because, you know, just idle hands are the devil's workshop. So I just, I tried to stay busy, you know, I tried to stay, kept my nights full, tried to prepare myself so that when, when I was freed up from like service, I would be able to go do, go do things. So the, I remember the the chief of staff for the second Marine air wing saw that I was, I was getting out and I just gotten promoted to captain. And he was like, why are you leaving? Why are you leaving the core? Why are you leaving all this glory? You know, why are you leaving all this good stuff? I'm like, well, you know. <laughs> right. But I, I didn't I didn't talk much about, well, I'm gonna go be a comedian, you know, or I'm gonna go be an actor, you know, because sure. it, it was generally frowned upon or laughed at or teased. It's all because they just nobody gets it and I don't have time to explain it to everybody. <laughs> right. So I just didn't talk about I just didn't talk about it very much. But I, I my intent was to go from North Carolina to Chicago. Um, and I was going to wait tables and bartend and uh take classes at second city and improv olympic that was sure. that was my that was my plan and uh the chief of staff came in and said and he's like well, what, what would it take for you to stay in the marines and i said well I, you know so I, I think i'm gonna, i, I want to try some things and i, I want to go to chicago to do what, what are you doing what are you, what are you what are you doing it's such a secret i'm like i, I think i want to be an actor comedian he's like oh god you know I, I, okay <laughs> <laughs> here we go so um he said uh, uh well, what if I can get you orders to New York City or Los Angeles? And I said, well, if you can give me any orders to New York or Los Angeles, I'll, I'll extend on active duty. I'll, I'll give you three more years. And uh, he called my bluff. The next day I had orders to New York City. So I said, oh, okay. So I signed on for three more years. I moved to New York City. And uh, I, I was uh, the deputy director up there for public affairs in, in uh, New York. And I did Marine Corps stuff from 7 to 5 every day. Uh, and then in the evenings, like every other, I went home from work, but instead I went to try to do comedy. And when I first got there, I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know where to start. I didn't have any connections. I didn't know anything.
4: Wow. So you, you really just arrived to New York city on a wing and a prayer. How did you get started then in the comedy
3: scene? What was your in? So I remember there was a a stand up club up in my neighborhood. I lived on the Upper East Side the comic strip live, I think, comic strip live on 83rd and 2nd Avenue. I walked by it one day because, like I said, I didn't know anybody. So literally, when I got to my neighborhood, I just started walking in these ever-expanding concentric circles. Right. I was like, oh, there's my grocery store. There's a very dirty Gristides. I'll shop there. (laughs) Here's here's a laundry mat. That's where I'll take my clothes because I don't have a washer and dryer. And I found a sports bar I was like, ah, oh, this is a really cool sports bar. This is where I'll watch my sports. <laughs> you know, maybe meet, maybe meet friends. Right. I mean, I knew I knew no one. Oh my god! And I sat down and started talking to the bartender. He was English. He was like, uh, you look like you big man. Big man, you ever play any rugby? I was like, no, no. You know, I, I, I play I played American football. He goes, eh, it's not like a all right, well show up here next week and uh, you know. And so I started playing rugby. it turns out that sports bar was the the rugby bar for the New York Rugby Football Club, which is the oldest one in New York, whatever so it was this all of a sudden, I found myself on the weekends bartending at this bar okay and I didn't have a car, so I would show up and there's always a couple guys and everybody just dogpiling the cars and we'd go underneath the Tri Bridge and we'd practice rugby that's amazing and I you know. I'm getting smashed and the hell beat out of me. And I don't know what I'm doing. I'm tackling with my head instead of my shoulders. And <laughs> so I'm getting my bell rung every day. And but I instantly, within, you know, two weeks of living there, I had all these friends, friends. and people that were really nice. And people that are like, Hey, hang out with us, or what are you doing tonight? Do you want to have a beer? And hey, there's a Halloween party. And I was like, This is amazing, you know? And <laughs> I was having a blast, but I was getting the hell beat out of me. And I, you know, so after about six months of that, I realized, okay. I quit flight school and I moved to New York for a reason, and that reason was comedy. So let's get to work. I said that after I got my face stepped on one day, and I was like, this is not good. You know, like I need to focus on comedy. Right.
5: If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. But with Zen nicotine pouches, you can find many.
4: So let's get to that. Let's get to the comedy. You're in New York. You've asked to be stationed there to do comedy. How, how did you start?
3: So I, I stopped kind of doing the rugby thing and I, I found this comedy club, which is right next door to the rugby bar. That's why I found it. And I went in and they said, yeah, we teach uh, stand up classes. And the okay. nice guy, you know, professional comedian for years, kind of salty, grizzled, You know, just over it, over life, over everything. But he's like, yeah, sign up, kid. You know, as he slid me a clipboard, and I went in, and I'm thinking, my idol was Eddie Murphy, and when it comes to stand up, Eddie Murphy, Delirious. I just thought that was the best stand up I've ever seen, and his style was storytelling. He was a great storyteller. He would tell a story. He'd play the characters in the story. He would, you know, great. He would use sound effects. He he was the most dynamic storyteller. I remember being enthralled with him. So I thought, that's the kind of stand-up I want to do. Well, not at the Comics Trip Live, my friend. That's not <laughs> what they teach. They teach three jokes per minute, set up, punch, set up, punch, set up, punch. That's how we do it. And I was so scared. I'd never done any really any public speaking. I wasn't that good at it, and I was, I was so afraid. I wasn't afraid to fly planes. I wasn't afraid to fire machine guns and rocket launchers and whatever. But I was afraid... To speak in front of people or tell a joke in front of people, terrified, trembling, wow. pulse out my neck. And I remember I like I'd get up and I'd pitch an idea in class. Or he goes, Riggle, you got a joke, let's hear it. And I'd stand up and I'd say it and I would bail on the joke because oh. I was so embarrassed <laughs> that like I wouldn't even get to the punch. I wouldn't even commit to it. I would just kind of start talking about it. I go, eh. Hey. It's it's almost like uh, Will Ferrell and Step Brothers when he doesn't want to sing, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's like, eh, but you know, it's just not right. It's not right. Yeah. You know, the sounds are the lights off. Uh, I come thousand because it was pathetic. It was pathetic. I was so afraid all the time, and then finally, it was that it's that okay? The end of the class. You have to do your five minute set. Uh, oh, and although all you also need to bring your friends, right, to buy drinks. Oh, of course. Which I was like, good God. You know, I didn't have any friends, and I definitely didn't really want me to see me. So I. I don't think I invited anybody. I think I got in trouble for it. But I went up on stage. I did five minutes. I came off the stage. I felt like I had been in some sort of trauma. No joke. I I felt like I'd been in a car crash or a fist fight because my adrenaline was, I've never felt it like that. It affected me in such a way that I felt like things were delayed. Like People were talking to me, but I wasn't hearing them. It was almost like a state of shock. It was that dramatic, which is shocking to me. But they gave me a videotape. They said, "Oh yeah, hey Riggle, here's your videotape." They tossed it to me, and it's like, huh. and I remember I took it home and I watched it, and I started to calm down. And I watched myself; it wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was. Uh, you know, the crowd reaction. But what to me, I couldn't hear them, I couldn't see them, I didn't listen to if they were laughing or not. I just powered through my three jokes per minute that I hated. To right. me, none of them were funny. I hated all my material. I hated it. So I, I got done with that whole experience, and I was depressed because I was like, I can't believe I gave up flying planes for this. <laughs> this, I made the biggest mistake of my life. <laughs> I made the biggest mistake of my life. And I was so depressed. And I remember thinking, why did I do this? What was I thinking? And I was really down on myself. And a friend of mine suggested... Hey, you know, I got a friend who does comedy. He was on Saturday Night Live. He's a really nice guy. So I call the guy, and it's Dave Keckner, who is a wonderful, a wonderful human being, uh, very gracious. His enthusiasm for life is still, it's still amazing, even today. Yeah. Yes. And so I call him up. I say, hey, Dave, you don't know me. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, this person, oh, yeah, yeah, they told me you might be calling. What's going on, big man? Nah, nah, nah. I was <laughs> like, well, I think I made a big mistake. I tell him my whole story. He's like, oh hell you shouldn't be doing stand-up man you gotta do improv i was like oh, they don't have it here in new york at that time they didn't all they had was chicago city limits in new york which is like short form improv like improv sports right games
4: yeah well here's an idea from the audience or whatever yeah
3: right and so i was like i, I don't want to do short form i've gone to see their shows and it's just that that's even that seems even more stressful than doing stand-up and He's like, no, 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 no. I've got some good friends who just moved out here from New York, from Chicago, and they're starting a long-form improv scene here in New York City. They're the best. You're going to love them. You got to go see. They do a Sunday night show. It was the Upright Citizens Brigade. It was Amy Poehler, Matt Walsh, Matt Besser, and Ian Roberts with their friends, Andy Richter, uh, Horatio Sands, Rachel Dratch, Tina Fey uh my uh Brian Stack, you know, Miriam Tolan, all these you know amazing performers and amazing writers. So I went down to this rickety little black box theater on 36 West 18th Street I think or whatever. It was a nightmare. The stairs should have been condemned. Getting up there was a is a death trap. Anyway, you go in and I sat down. I had no idea what to expect and I saw the ass cat show that they do. Yeah. And I was so shocked that I was like, they're making this up as they go along. Like, it's too funny. It's too good. The characters are so specific. My head was spinning. So immediately afterward, I went up to Matt Walsh and I said, hey, um, I'm friends with Dave. He goes, what'd you think? I go, where do I sign up? Where do I I want? I want to do this. This is what I want to do. So he's like, okay, great, man. it basically sign right here and I'll take the check.
0: (laughs) I was like, you got it.
3: And so that's. That's where it started. I started taking classes with the UCB. At that time, Amy uh, Walsh, Besser, and Ian Roberts were the only teachers. There were four of them, and they only had three levels. And I took all three levels twice so I could have all four teachers because uh, they were all so wow. good, and they all taught different things. And you know, a level was only eight weeks, You know, once a week. And so I took all those levels. Then I, they started doing house teams. I got on a house team And I started playing with so many great, wonderful people: Owen Burke, Paul Shear, Rob Hubel, Chad Carter, uh, Seth Morris, Brian Husky, Rob Cordry. I mean, uh, you know, people that are uh, just truly still in the business and still kicking so much butt. And so I feel so blessed that we all kind of came up together. I mean, we we did Mm -hmm. it all, and and we did that. I did that for seven years. You know, I I was teaching classes down there on the weekends. I was whatever I had to do to be around the theater. I would do lights and tech for other people's shows just so I could watch their show so I could get to meet them because I thought they were so awesome or whatever. And That's so great. I felt like I got a master's in sketch writing and improv and comedy in general. And you got the most important thing, stage time. I got a lot of stage time down there, which allowed me to That's make right. all those mistakes that we all make when you're starting out. And then so many things happened. I had to go away to Kosovo. Then 9-11 happened. Then I had to go away for a year then. So when 2004 came around, because I moved there in 97 to New York and, and I got on Saturday Night Live in 2004. And my, my Oprah moment, which I'll share with you because I have, I'm not going to ever probably be on Oprah. But I, uh, when I quit flight school, I was down in Corpus Christi, Texas. I wrote in a book, if I do this, because I hadn't quit anything in my life up to that point. If I do this, uh, it's got to count. It's got to matter. So what am I going to accomplish? And I wrote down, I'm going to get on Saturday Night Live. In Corpus Christi. In Corpus Christi. Now, 10 years later, almost to the day, I get a call from Lauren Michaels asking me to, to join the cast. Uh, so it took 10 years, but it, it, it happened.
4: Well, you know, it's so crazy because I recently talked to Dave Keckner, and he was there in Missouri, and that was his very yeah. specific dream as well, yeah. to get on SNL.
3: Yeah, I, I do, amazing. you know, when you if you experience it, it's hard to deny it. And when I say that, I mean the law of attraction. And what you focus on, you tend to get. It's not given. Just because you think about it doesn't mean it's gonna happen. You gotta meet it halfway. You gotta work. You gotta drive. You gotta push. You gotta stay focused. If you experience it, you really believe in it. So I, I do believe that it's possible. I do believe it's real. It's so crazy to me
4: hearing you talk because I mean, it's obviously, it's a part of your makeup, right? I mean, but hearing you, your dedication, I mean, the part of that has to come from your childhood, from your time in the Marines, that it's about working hard and staying committed. And that is so rare, uh, particularly in our business, or at least in the entertainment business, if you will. It's also flip and people expect things to be given to them because of this thing or that thing and that you showed such amazing resolve and commitment and essentially said I don't even I don't even know what this thing is I hear there's a couple of places in Chicago that are good but that you persevered
3: that is amazing well thanks thanks that's very nice of you but I think you probably have a very similar journey Uh, In some, in some respect, I mean, I think anybody who searches for a life unique or different, or especially in the arts, they're going to meet resistance for a long time before they even get their, their opportunity.
5: If you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zin. Find your Zin online or in a store near you at slash find. That's slash find. Warning this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.
4: So from UCB, obviously you auditioned, right? You auditioned for Lauren. You went through that process. At that point, did you feel confident? Had the the feeling of of, of leaving your body? Had that kind of dissipated, and, and were you more confident? I was more th- confident on
3: stage. Yes, I, I I didn't have the adrenaline rush. It wasn't like I just got out of a car accident, right? But the adrenaline was still very intense because. After seven years of grinding every night, every weekend, now this, this dream that you had, had kind of done everything in your power to put yourself in a position to happen, well, now it's happening, and it's up to me. Like I, I can look around the room, but there's only one person up here auditioning. So these are these great moments in life. These are these wonderful opportunities in life where you get to have a gut check, and you get to have a conversation with yourself. You know, saying, Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? Why did you come here? I have had so many conversations with myself out loud that if anybody was filming them, I would look like a crazy person because I do it out loud. I actually do it out loud. Usually I do it in the privacy of my car or, you know, in in a bathroom or something or the golf course when I'm off in a sand trap screaming at myself. But I, I remember. This is the summer of 2004. I had just taught a class at the UCB. It was a 7 to 10 p.m. class. I had worked all day, and I got done, and all I wanted to do was go home and go to bed because I was tired, I was a little pissed. So I came out of that class, and I stood on 31st and 7th Avenue, and I knew SNL auditions were coming up, and I knew I was behind. I didn't have it done. But I was tired and I was afraid of, you know, all these. And so I'm literally standing on the corner yelling at myself, saying things like, what the fuck are you doing? People are walking by me and I'm going, what the fuck are you doing? Are you telling me you quit flight school? You moved up here. You've been grinding your fucking ass off for seven years and you're just going to go home and go take a nappy nap because you're tired, you motherfucker. I'm a fucking marina. up. Get your ass down to the goddamn theater, work on a motherfucking character, literally screaming at myself to get the fuck down to the theater and do it. And I had to have those kind of conversations. And it sounds hilarious, but I had to be my own drill sergeant. I had to be my own coach. I had to be my own kick me in the ass guy because nobody was doing that. So I'm literally barking at myself to get down there. And the reason I didn't want to go down is because I was not prepared. I did not have any material. So I got down there. I signed up. I'm in the green room. So I start like throwing out a few thoughts on this character, and it was an old character. It was a, a far too old gym teacher that uh, is still teaching sex ed classes uh, and has no business doing it, right? And so that's but that was the premise. But that's all I had. So then. I said, okay, well maybe I'll try. So I get out there and I kind of walk out there with like a right. walker or whatever. And, and I start That's talking funny. about penises and vaginas and it, it was working because I was getting last, but I'm improvising the whole thing, but I'm trying to remember that worked, that worked, And it went so well that I went back into the green room and I, there was still time and there weren't enough people signed up. So I said, I'm going to go back out do another character. So I went back out and I did a recruiter who wouldn't take no for an answer. So I tried to recruit a guy in the audience. You know, I was like, Hey young man, how are you paying for college? He's like, I, you know, I don't know. My, my parents are like, really? You can put the per- burden on your parents? How about you man up? How about you do? It didn't matter. I could come. He said, you know, he could say anything to me. He could say, I'm, I'm a double amputee. I go, that's great. We got that all day. We can do that all day. I got to wait for that. <laughs> right, right. And I went home that night, like at fucking 1.30 right. or whatever. By the time I got home, <laughs> I was so proud of myself that I had gone down there and made progress. So that was a, that was a, a good moment, but it, it required me being my own coach for sure. That's amazing.
4: Was your dream? Of getting on SNL. Was it everything that you had hoped that it would be?
3: Yes. Unequivocally, yes. It was a total dream come true. And I wouldn't trade a minute of it. Would I do things differently knowing now? Yes. Absolutely I would. I I was yeah. so green. That was the first job I had in show business. I didn't know shit from Shinola. I didn't know anything. I remember Amy Puller was on the show at the time, and she's very wise and very, very smart very savvy. All I knew was the Marines and uh, work ethic. That's really all I brought to the table. And I remember Amy pulled me aside, maybe my first or second day, and she goes, Congratulations. She was so happy for me because she was one of my teachers, you know. She right. was very happy. And I think I was the first UCB student to actually get on the show. So she was happy.
4: Oh, that had gone through all of the classes.
3: Yeah. And, um, she was super happy for me and I was, you know, it was my dream come true. And she kind of leaned over and said, Hey, don't give this place too much power. And I remember going, yeah, good. Got it. I didn't know what that meant. (laughs) And instead of asking for clarity, like, what do you mean? I just went, yeah, yeah, good, good call. Good call. Good call. And you know, hindsight's 20, 20. Now I realize I did, I did just that. I got there and I gave that place so much power that I forgot how I even got there. I forgot. I I looked around and I was like, well, I need to write with all the writers so they all get to know me. So that's what I did. I'd go knock on doors. Hey, would you like to write a sketch? Would you like to write a sketch? Would you like to write a sketch? So I ended up trying to please 20 masters and I pleased none. And again, these are all lessons you learn as you go and as you grow. So I'm not beating myself up and I'm not judging myself. Uh, I would just do, I would have done it differently. Right. And you got to remember too, I was the only guy hired that year. Oh, you were the only new guy. Only new guy. So I talked to Will Farrell about it and he said, uh, well, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> and I, went, uh, <laughs> I go, what? I go, I don't want to hear that. What do you mean? He goes, listen, he goes, When I when I came on, the cast was only 12. And I think they hired six of us that year. They had to use us. We were being we were gonna be in every scene no matter what. You're on a cast of 15 and you're the only new guy. And he goes, so you know, you're gonna to have to do your best to try to find a way to be seen and heard.
4: Right. And I was like, Yeah,
3: yeah. You know what I mean? And so it's a matter of how do I find a way. <laughs> and the thing was, by anybody's standards, I had a great first year. I, I did. You know, I I made every show. I I had characters get on the air. I had sketches that I co-wrote get on the air. I had, I did okay for a first year guy flying by himself. I, right. people thought I, I had a good year. I thought I did okay. You,
4: you, had know? A, you had a great year. It's just making yeah, me think and, of. It's making me think of Squid Game, though. Right, when Squid Game <laughs> says like, "Okay, everybody find a partner," <laughs> and you look around <laughs> and you're like. Wait a second. Fifteen is an odd number. <laughs> I'm the new guy. Where am I going now? Yeah. No, I get it. That's really that is challenging.
3: It's super tricky. And so I remember we all left in, in high spirits that season. And I thought, okay, well, when I come back next year, I am going to lose some weight because the costume department was very mean to me, and they said I would, you know, I, you got to lose weight, stop eating. They would. I mean, they were brutal. You know, so I'm trying to lose weight. I'm out there running every day and working out over the summer, and I'm doing character work and and I was trying to grab stage time, and I was just doing everything I could to come back stronger than ever. And um, I got a call saying they didn't they didn't want uh, to extend me uh, extend my contract. So I remember I was being devastated by that, and I gave myself about a 15 minute pity party. Okay, I remember just I was scared, I was hurt, I was embarrassed, I was all those. Negative emotions. I wanted to change it. Can I call somebody? Is there anything I can do? What can we do to undo this? <laughs> right? You know, how can I fix this? And I, I think I went through all five stages of grief in about fifteen minutes. And uh, I accepted the fact that this is this is what it is. And there's is it's it is it's over. So I said, okay, well I got to make a living. So I, I I got back on the phone. I called my uh, manager and I said, okay, what do we do next? And then Rob Hewell and I ended up selling a a pilot script to nbc and so that's what i worked on that fall of 2005 and and then shortly after that 2006 i got on the daily show yeah but yeah it was a it was a sad right sad harsh feeling did did you
4: ever get any closure with snl or was it just like thanks but no
3: thanks i did talk to one of the producers ken among who was really the only one who reached out it's very cold very cold business. I I learned a little bit about show business again. I was so naive. I thought there would be some, you know, heartfelt handshake and pat on the back from Lauren. As I exited the (laughs) building, (laughs) you know, no, no, it's nothing like that. It's, it's, it's served up very cold. Yeah. Um, but Ken said, listen, Rob, you know, you did a great job. It wasn't anything you did. It's, you didn't upset anybody. You didn't, it was 2004. It was, uh, Kerry versus Bush election year. And in election year, SNL gets a huge spike in the ratings. And for whatever reason, people hated that election. No spike in the ratings. And mm-hmm. so NBC didn't like it. And they demanded that Lauren shake up the cast. And so I was last one in first one out. Right. And he said, that's what happened. You just got caught up in a bad timing situation, but that's okay because the people they did go get, I love all of them. So Congrats. Uh, and then I was I was blessed to have Jon Stewart pick me up and make me a correspondent on his show, which I did for three years. And and we won the Emmy all three years, SNL. Uh, yeah. that. Uh, there you go.
5: <laughs> if you're a smoker or dipper looking to make a change, you really only need one reason to do it. just ask one of the millions of people who have achieved lasting change. You have lots of options when it comes to nicotine satisfaction, but there's only one Zin. Find your Zin online or in a store near you at Zin.com find. That's ZYN.com find. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical.
4: I'm glad you brought up The Daily Show because uh, I wanted to talk about that. As you may know, uh, my good friend and yours, Steve Carell, was on The Daily Show, Stephen Colbert, so many incredible comedians. And around the time you were on it, it really took off and it it really became must-see TV or in some ways America's news source mm-hmm. because even with all the jokes and and stuff, it also gave... I mean, at least an amount of real information and insights. Uh, I was such a huge fan of that show. W- was that a good experience
3: for you? It was the best. Um, I learned so much. And John Stewart is such an amazing leader uh, and, and very smart man. He really sees through a lot of stuff. And he was very, very gracious with me. He knew I was still green. Uh, he knew I didn't have much experience in front of a camera. Uh, I, I never worked off a teleprompter. That was hilarious because I'd start reading off a teleprompter and I, I'd be like, yes, I can hardly get anything out because I, I would get so scared. <laughs> it's intense. And then it, I would read faster and it would move faster. I was like, I can't keep up. And then we'd just explode, right? <laughs> and it's, it's, they'll read at your pace. I'm like, yeah, but they're not. Like, I start reading and it starts moving and I can't keep up. And they're like, it's, don't speed up. Like, and so, Quite literally, on my lunch breaks, I would get the teleprompter lady, because she could eat her lunch at her desk and do it, and I would get the floor director. We would go into the studio, and I would throw up old scripts, and I would just practice and practice and practice on that teleprompter. So I got comfortable you know, looking and seeing the font and and letting the words drift by and not panicking that I wasn't going to catch them or whatever. And somehow, I think John found out about it and i think he like he appreciated that he appreciated that i cared enough to get better at it cuz he knew i wasn't good at it <laughs> and you know the way it works over there is you're hired for 6 months it's not a job it's it's an audition still it's an extended audition so then i i got i passed the first 6 months so i got myself another 6 months but that was it just another 6 months right. so i'm like ah oh, you know so i still I'm, i can't commit to moving a family across the country i can't commit to because it's also basic cable. It's not paying me anything. You know, I could barely afford to live in the Craigslist studio apartment, which is what I was living in. (laughs) And then after that second six months, I got picked up for one year. So I was like, woohoo. And then I got one year extensions after that, you know, but it was never any hardcore commitment. However, that time on that show, I'll, I'll be so grateful for because John allowed me to make mistakes, to get better, to get stronger, to contribute in the writing room. I just learned so much from him uh, and he, he was so gracious. So I'm, I'll always be a fan of his. And then, you know, John Oliver and I ended up, uh, we shared an office and, and, you know, what a treat that was because he was a geographical he was a bachelor and I was a geographical bachelor. So when I got done with work, I would either go back to my studio and grab a chipotle on the way back and then play playstation that's what that's how i spend my evenings <laughs> right. because it keeps you out of trouble and saves money anytime you leave your apartment in new york city <laughs> you're, you're spending money
4: you're done yeah
3: so i just save money by doing that and and john oliver same boat pretty much But I, so when we get done with work he'd say okay we're gonna jump in a cab right after work and we're gonna hit five mics tonight and i go i don't do stand up man I, I i suck at it i tried it when i got up here it sucks he goes, no, 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 we're gonna do it different. And so we built a set, and in one night, he helped me build like three solid minutes. I was like, okay, so I got three. He goes, All right, we're just gonna keep doing this until you have 45 minutes. And so we did. Wow. And then eventually I had a stand-up set and was able to do stand-up for about four years touring around and all because John, I think, was bored and was like, You're coming with me. I need someone to <laughs> I need someone to split cab fare with because we're going all over Manhattan and doing stand-ups.
4: Well, You can thank John, but it's, again, perseverance and hard work and, uh, you know, the story of you during your lunch hour practicing to get better because you knew you had to get better. That's about perseverance and hard work, and that's – that is something truly, well, to respect the hell out of you for. I mean, come on. And now, during all of this time, you're also, you know, starting to do straight acting work and – of course, I can't not mention Captain Jack, uh, your role <laughs> on of the office, coming out to film what was, without a doubt, the most difficult film week that we had in 10 years. There's no question. There's no question. <laughs> Working from 7 p.m. to like 7 a.m. out on oh the water. Gosh.
3: It was. It was. Were
4: you aware of the office when you got that job? What was oh, your awareness Oh, my gosh, yeah. Okay.
3: So I, w- I was very aware of the BBC version. While I was on SNL, uh, you know, we're on, uh, the writers are on 17 and the studio's down on 8 and on 16. They have a, casting directors and stuff. I actually auditioned for Michael Scott. I knew this. Yes. And I auditioned for Dwight and Kechner's role. Packer. Uh, I forget his name. Packer. They made the right choice, obviously. Uh, but I was fresh <laughs> in their minds because I think I did the episode that I did, The Booze Cruise, before I got uh, the, Daily the Daily Show. The so Daily Show. that gap between SNL and when I got The Daily Show. Okay. That's when I got the office role, which I was so happy to get and so honored. And for me, it was super cool because, one, I love the show. It was your guys' second season, I think. That's right. The show's a hit. Everybody knows it. Everybody's loving it. And I was one of them. I was like, more and more. And I get to be part of it, which was great. But I'm still so green as an actor and as a performer, being on camera still made me nervous. I'm nervous as hell. And when we got out on the water, remember when we floated out, they okay, between between setups, normally everybody goes back to the trailer, they go back to Crafty, kind of everybody separates against their space. There was nowhere to go on that boat. When they'd say, <laughs> okay, we're setting up for it, moving on, it's time for a new shot. They'd go to set up. We all just go sit on the dance floor or sit in those booths, <laughs> those booths. and hang out. Yeah, those booths. And I remember thinking... This is awesome. I just remember enjoying the hell out of it and not even dawning on me that we were dust till dawn. Right. Um, and it was draining. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, Corell was shooting Evan Almighty and he would literally leave. We'd pull back to the, to the dock. He would get out, get in a sedan and drive to film all day. And I remember thinking, when's this guy getting his sleep? This is insane. <laughs> Yeah. And and yet his performance on the boat, and I'm sure his performance in the movie, fantastic. Yeah, but it was total fun. One thing about that episode that bums me out to this day. Okay, for whatever reason, I don't know. Maybe it was the devil, maybe evil demon, angel. Somebody would not let me get the words Wall and Paw Pack out of my mouth. <laughs> That's right. I couldn't say it.
4: Wall and Paw. Pack. I couldn't
3: say it. That's right. we were supposed to be on Lake Wall and Paw Pack. I can say it now. Right. As if it's nothing. I can say it with ease that night I, I maybe got it out once or twice correctly and the rest I just couldn't do it and I remember they were looking at me and they were baffled they were absolutely baffled like what is this guy's major malfunction how do you, can you not say wall and paw pack and I I can't explain it it's just one of those moments where you're like I'm so sorry I wanted to die I wanted to go crawl I wanted to dive off that boat and die well first of all
4: Everyone has been there. I have not thought about that in 15 years. And you and I see each other, I don't know, 10 times a year at various things. I have not ever once thought of that moment until right now. And the second you said it, I was like, oh, that's
3: right. He couldn't say it. Uh, I couldn't say it. I couldn't say it right. And I know it was so simple, and they were little, they were looking at me. And go wall and paw pack. I go wall just wall and wall paw, wall, paw, paw, paw pack wall paw, paw, paw. paw I mean, really, there was some synapses in my brain that would not connect it. And you know, you know, Brian, as as an actor, the drive home. Oh, I said yeah. every line perfectly. Oh, I said every word sure. perfectly. I mean, <laughs> I couldn't have been more spot on the drive home. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny.
4: That is, yeah. oh, that is amazing. Do you get recognized, do people yell Captain Jack at
3: you? Every now and then, yes. Okay. Yes, they do. Okay. I was probably, no joke, probably 40, 50 pounds heavier then. Right. So uh, I looked a little different then. Um, yeah, interesting.
4: That episode, by the way, it was, was shared with me or reminded by Kevin Riley, actually, who was the head of NBC at the time, that he would call about the ratings after every night and obviously the office became a big show for him and he kind of staked his reputation on it and after booze cruise the office didn't just retain the number from my name is Earl which came before but actually beat it <laughs> in the ratings and he said wow. I, he said I may have cried it <laughs> was like that kind of mo- moment for him like that episode so significant
3: you know, the only thing that brought uh, – other than not being able to say Wall and Paul Pack, which still haunts me. I mean, I still feel so bad about that. I was bummed out because I knew that once my episode was over, you wouldn't see Captain Jack again. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and they're not going to bring me back as some other character. Right. Because I always wanted to be reoccurring on, on The Office. Just because it's such an iconic, legendary show. But uh, I won't be greedy. I was very grateful for the opportunity to, to to be Captain Jack.
4: Well, look, I mean, during that time and just... Setting the office aside, you were really on, had the opportunity to appear on every great show during that time with, you know, all due respect to the ones you weren't on. But, I mean, Arrested Development and 30 Rock and Modern Family and just amazing, all of the shows that that you were on during that time and obviously recurred on a lot of them.
3: Yeah, I I was uh, very happy about that, very blessed. But the office is definitely special.
4: Well... Yes, it is for me, too.
3: <laughs> Absolutely, it should be. Uh,
4: I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but you and I share, obviously, a love of football. I know you worked at Fox as one of their, I don't know, what do you call it, contributors? Proc- Progno- prognostic- Prognosticators. Prognosticators. Yeah. Yes, Something, comedian. Yeah. And a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan. I'm sorry. did you Did you watch the Super Bowl, or did you say, screw it?
3: I watched it. I watched it. I'm I'm a fan of the game. Uh, I'm glad they give us a week off uh, from the AFC and NFC championships to the Super Bowl. It allowed me to cool down a little bit. It allowed me to walk it off, as they say. Yeah. You know, this year's playoffs were the greatest playoffs I've seen uh, maybe in my lifetime. Uh, the game before that against Buffalo was probably the single greatest game I'd ever seen. And so this uh, playoff season was full of high highs and low lows and but that's why they play the games, you know. That's what makes it exciting, you know. And and uh, it was uh, it was fun to see such great competition. But yeah, of course, I'm. Uh, I'll never forgive uh, Cincinnati.
4: Cincinnati, yeah, yeah. Did you root for Cincinnati because they beat you, or <laughs> did you root against them because they beat you?
3: You know, it was that's a tough call um, because there's a couple schools of thought. Because if they go on to win the Super Bowl, they become a team of destiny and. It was preordained, so we can live with the loss a little better, you know. Right. They were a team of destiny. Um, Or do I want vengeance? Um, (laughs) Tough call, uh, because I I wanted both, to be honest with you. Um, But I also like, since I'm a Kansas, I'm diehard Kansas City, Kansas City, top, never in question. However, I live in L.A. Right. So I don't feel bad about rooting for the Rams, because they're NFC, and it's where I live. Yes. So, and same thing with the Dodgers. They're NL. Uh, National League, and uh, it's where I live. So I can root for those guys so long as they're not playing the Royals or the Chiefs. Right. Now, if you play the Royals or Chiefs, obviously they get you trumped. So I don't know.
4: Yeah. I, you know, because I, as a Packers fan, generally for me, it's vengeance like <laughs> Seattle or the Niners. <laughs> I can't root for them. I just, I mean, it's just, it's an impossibility. Yeah. I, I think similarly, to you, the L.A. thing. I find the Rams fairly likable. I like, I like all of those guys. I think the Stafford story is just a great story, and Cooper Cup, and you know, you talk about perseverance and determination. I mean, that guy. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But my dad was from Cincinnati, and no joke, Rob. This morning, my sister sent me a photograph. My grandmother. Who, by the way, lived to 98. And I always remember her as like dressed impeccably. Didn't have a lot of means. Like wasn't rich by any means, but just always looked her best. And my sister this morning sent me a photograph. And she said, this has to have been from 1989. Because it was my grandmother and my grandfather standing on their porch in Cincinnati, Ohio. And my grandmother is wearing a Cincinnati Bengals sweatshirt and it must <laughs> nice. have been that Super it Bowl run back there. I would have been yep. the only thing that would have made her wear a sweatshirt. so I did uh, i liked like the Rams. I was rooting for the Bengals. I have to admit it I was rooting for the Bengals.
3: <laughs> yeah I, I love the I love the good game. I liked a good game and then and, and I think we got a good game, so that's all you can ask for.
4: Well, speaking of good games, uh, first of all, thank you so much for talking to me and sharing so much about your career and your work ethic, which now it'll probably be a problem for me trying to take money from you <laughs> on the golf course, but I look forward <laughs> I look forward to our competition. I will tell you, Rob was Rob was a straight underdog. I mean, let's just be honest. Last year in Tahoe, <laughs> the odds I don't know what they would have been they weren't good he kicked my ass last year and played so well and his caddy is teaching me le- I'm like where i how i mean this is unbelievable putt with energy putt with energy yeah. next year i'm going to come i'm going to get you because i'm going <laughs> to think about putting with energy
3: we got to line up some side action we did we say we did we were going to do it last we didn't get it done so Let's let's figure it out and we'll get the usual cast of characters.
4: Well, now you're the favorite. Now you're the favorite. <laughs> and I get odds because you you did it to me last year. <laughs> oh my God. You played so great last year. Let let's try to play before then. That's not till July. Absolutely. Let's do yeah,
3: it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got time.
4: Rob, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me.
3: I'm so glad you invited me. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good talking to you always.
4: You too. And I'm telling you, the perseverance stuff. I, I just I'm so happy for you and proud of you sounds weird, but like, yeah, I mean, you just fucking stuck with it. It's
3: awesome. Well, thanks buddy. Same with you. Yeah. Same with you. Yeah.
4: Rob Riggle. Ladies and gentlemen, what a pleasure. Oh, I enjoyed that. Thank you so much for stopping by Rob. I'll see you very, very soon. And thank you to everyone out there listening. Head over to at off the beat on Instagram to stay in the know about this podcast and to keep us up to speed on who you would like to hear from. Who should I sit down with next? Well, next week we've already got another spectacular guest, Ooh, who could it be? Will he tell us? No. Until then, everybody, have a fantastic week. Off the Beat is hosted and executive produced by me, Brian Baumgartner, alongside our executive producer, Ling Lee. Our producers are Diego Tapia, Liz Hayes, Emily Carr, and Hannah Harris. Our talent producer is Ryan Papa Zachary. Our theme song, Bubble and Squeak, performed by my great friend Creed Bratton, and the episode was mixed by Seth Olansky.
0: The journey to a smoke-free future can be a long and winding road. But if you're ready for a change, consider taking Zen for a spin. Zen Nicotine Pouches offer a fresh way to discover your nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. No smoke, no spit, and no lingering odor. Ready to start your new journey? Get in gear with the Zen 10 Challenge. Enjoy Zen Nicotine Pouches for 10 days and discover a fresher way to experience nicotine satisfaction anywhere, anytime. Here's how to get started with the Zen 10 Challenge.